on this week's show, the GTA Trilogy reboot reviews are in, and they're not good. Duke Nukem gets the craziest spin-off we've ever seen. And we talk agony of real and outcast with Frank Sauer. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, just available again on their website from this week, the guide to Japanese role-playing games, covering the entire history of JRPG games from 1982 to 2020. This is their most ambitious book to date, reviewing over 600 games and coming in at over 650 pages. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 302, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that every Friday takes you behind the scenes on classic video games. A nice, healthy dollop of nostalgia on each, week, each week's show as well. And also we talk about new stuff that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology because that's the thing about this show obviously we reminisce a lot but it's not all about stuff that happened 20 30 years ago because it is a legit subgenre of gaming now retro and in fact we've seen so many re-releases of classic games of course a big one that we need to talk about in just a minute is the uh, the grand theft auto trilogy that we've been hyped about on this show for how long oh god years because ravi's been following <laughs> it for absolutely years as well haven't you mate so yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I think you're right you know a lot of titles are kind of they're looking back aren't they and they're kind of mm. they're kind of running out of ideas maybe <laughs> I was gonna say, it's, it's like hollywood they're running out of ideas so they gotta go back <laughs> But it turns out, I mean, something that you think would be the simplest thing to do ever, you know, get a a 20-year-old game up and run and get it looking nice again. Turns out it may be a little bit more challenging than we anticipated. So we'll talk about the reviews that have come in for the trilogy. I've been playing a bit of it as well, so we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And of course, we do reminisce about games that we played as kids on this show as well. I mean, that was the original idea of this podcast when we thought about it six years ago. We want to find out the stories of consoles, of computers, of companies, of games that we grew up playing and kind of get the real story from the horse's mouth as it were you know from the developer and i remember playing a game called agony when i was a kid now to me this must have been around 1991 when i first saw that game and i remember at the time i still had a commodore plus four which was you know a a very low powered 8-bit home computer and i saw this game called agony that had this incredible graphic it was like a a side-scrolling shoot-em-up game of an owl over a parallax scrolling background. It had like rain and thunder and lightning effects and it had this gorgeous piano music on it as well. It was like something from another world. When I, when I first saw that game with the beautiful piano intro and stuff, I was nearly brought to tears. I was mm. like, I'm an Amiga guy and this is really, really showing the machine off. It was absolutely beautiful and like the art behind it had some really famous people involved with there as well. Roger Dean, who did those fantastic amazing covers and uh you know we're talking to frank Zauer today and he was actually the co-founder of art magic who were the developers that created this and he's got a really interesting story actually because he he worked on agony as well which was another amazing title and outcast but also some c64 titles before that uh, like iron lord um he worked on amstrad as well and mm-hmm. he's kind of he was from the uh, Belgium 
and also he, he was working with France. So we've had a lot of developers on that have been from America or they've been on from England and stuff, but we've not really covered that kind of European area that much. We've had a lot of German and stuff, but Belgium and France, I think this is really interesting and it's, it's a totally different episode to ones that we usually have, but of course it's it's got some good Commodore and Amiga content in there. Which we always love. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, the, the companies you worked with back then, you know, Cygnosis, absolutely legendary companies, particularly for their, their graphics as well. I mean, they always had that it oozed quality. You could always tell a Cygnosis gamer thing, couldn't you? Oh, totally. And uh, also Ubisoft, that apparently mm. they all lived in a giant castle in a forest <laughs> and, and developed in there, which sounds kind of crazy. So we've got some fun stories from those times as well. So Frank Sauer, our special guest, he'll be coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, just quickly, before we jump into the news stories this week, lots to get through, including this absolutely insane new version of Duke Nukem 3D that we need to talk about in a second. Let's take a moment to give a big thank you to one of our regular sponsors. It is our wonderful mates at Retro Gamer Magazine. Now, Retro Gamer, of course, the monthly magazine that comes out covering all aspects of retro gaming. If you love our podcast, you should be reading it every month. And I mean, in the current issue, it is a celebration of Super Monkey Ball that has been going now for uh, 20 years since that original game came out. I know you guys were big fans back in the day. That just makes me feel really old because I always used to play Super Monkey Ball at my friend's house on the GameCube after school and absolutely loved the mini games in it because I was really, really bad at the main game. But that's amazing that they've got like the full history of it there because there's so many games in that series as well. Monkey bowling, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's all about monkey bowling and the monkey parachuting. <laughs> and they've also got the making of a theme park as well. I mean, I remember first getting that game on a magazine cover disc and just being absolutely hooked on that. Did some really evil things, actually, thinking back. I was quite a twisted kid, you know, um, really treating the, uh, the patrons of the park quite badly, actually, thinking back. Uh, but also the stuff in there, like, you know, Mega CD collection guide as mm-hmm. well. Um, a little in-depth guide on the uh, the Sega Nomad that was, you know, their 16-bit handheld console. And they also do a special feature on here as well, um, looking back on Christmases back in the day as well. A lot of Christmas memories. Now we're getting into that time of year. So, of course, you should be reading Retro Gamer magazine every month. And actually, if you want to take up a subscription, there is an amazing offer that we've got for you right now where you can get a free n64 tribute or a mega drive bluetooth controller now you're probably going to be torn here joe which is your favorite out of those two then this is so hard because of the mega drive controller is the really kick-ass six button controller which i absolutely love but then the n64 tribute controller is the really really nice two-prong controller which we all begged for back in the 90s which just didn't (laughs) exist back then so this is really difficult but if i had to pick i'd probably go for the n64 one because i've not got any like that and you can use that on your original console as well so you can can get a usb or a classic n64 uh, version which is insane yeah, and the Mega Drive one, that's a Bluetooth one. It works with uh, you know, your emulators, Windows, Mac, Raspberry Pi, um, iOS, even on the Switch as well. Obviously, you've got a lot, you know, Mega Drive and N64 games on the uh, Nintendo Switch now as well. Be perfect for those. So if you want to get hold of Retro Gamer Magazine, why don't you use our exclusive link, get yourself one of those incredible free retro controllers by heading to this website, open a new tab in your browser right now, go to magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. And maybe you're already a Retro Gamer subscriber. You could gift 
gift the mag to someone else, you know. It's a, the season of goodwill is coming up. And keep the gift for yourself, you know, they're never going to know. And you'll get six months of Retro Gamer and that Retro Controller absolutely free. And, of course, be helping out the podcast by doing it. Head to this website, magazinesdirect.com slash retropod. And a big thank you to our friends at Retro Gamer for their support of our show. Right, then, we're going to get into it then. GTA trilogy have you guys played it let's start at the beginning you guys actually played any of the the new versions then of um these I, three classic games that i've have never not been wasted my money on that. <laughs> <laughs> i this class sounds so harsh so i have xbox game pass and san andreas was on there which i thought was mm. really cool because of the original san andreas like you know the whatever you want to call it hd remaster i don't even know what you want to call it but you know the version that's been removed now that was yeah. on there for like yeah. years and i never played it like i've played gta to death like so many other games i could play on there and they've replaced it with the new you know remaster which is really cool and i downloaded it the other night and then i've just seen i don't even i don't even know what to call it without swearing i've just seen you know the backlash of it all and how but, bad it is you well, know so i've just uh, I deleted it i've not played it <laughs> Oh, is well. it, I, I think it's good that it's on Game Pass though, because that gives more accessibility pe- to yeah. people. But um, let's talk about it, because you know the thing is, I love Rockstar, and I don't want mm. I don't want it to be bad, and I don't want them to have a bad release because they've got like their history is good releases and and good mm. quality games, and that's what they've mm. always kind of gone on. But this this seems like it's got so many problems. That, uh, yeah, I don't know. They might be entering this kind of world. The, this modern world of release a game and then patch it later, which um, as seems to be happening with so many releases at the moment. Cyberpunk being a, a great example, but I even remember like Assassin's Creed Black Flag that long ago, um, even longer than that. You know, there's there's been so many releases that are just broken at the start, and uh, hearing so many elements of, of of this game being broken is 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 quite upsetting as a bit of a a GTA fan, to be honest. But you know what, though? Because that initial release is so important because mm. that is when all the magazine reviews come out, the website reviews, the YouTube videos are made. People you don't are really streaming get, it. Yeah, you, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. You, you've hit the nail on the head there. And my concern is, obviously, it came out on the 7th, so a week ago now, on all the, you know, the online stores and stuff. And then there's a physical release. Sorry, it came out on the 11th, sorry, of November. There's a physical release coming on the 7th of December which is just like, is that enough time to fix it? You know, and like you say, mm. like, you, you you miss your first chance with games sometimes. Like you say, reviewers and everything like that. You know, it reminds me of Tony Hawk's uh, Pro Skater, not the remake of 1 and 2, but the one before that. I think it was Pro Skater 5, I can't remember, where it was just like an unplayable mess and then they tried to fix it and made it relatively playable. But that still goes down as like one of the worst games ever made. And well, it's really... Duke Nukem Forever, you know, that was... Yeah, complete... yeah, 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 exactly. But it's 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 so sad because it's like... Have you guys seen its Metacritic score? It's like 0.5. Yeah, the Switch version. The that Switch is, version, it? yeah. yeah it's, like, it's, it's been it's hammered. I, f- I think hammered, one thing yeah. we'll just mention before we get into the meat of it is that like even with everything fixed, they're still missing like... I think it's about 50 tunes. Oh, yeah, and I a lot, that's lot what we of classic. Talk about when we, <laughs> <laughs> well, we we said that the other week, didn't we? When we, we were talking about whether it was going to be good or not, we said if that full soundtrack wasn't in there, particularly in Vice City, mm. they're going to get a backlash. And I mean, stuff like Michael Jackson's Billie Jean and Want to Be Starting Something's not in there, which to me, 
I hear Billie Jean and instantly I think of Vice City. Mm. I think I can't remember which one of you it was, but one of you said like, oh, 10 songs not on the definitive edition. And then literally, I think it was Dan, you said it like 10 songs not on there. And then immediately Ravi was like 40 songs not on there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> like straight away, <laughs> like, you know, in our group chat, it was <sighs> just like, oh my days. So I which thought, I thought, I thought there would be a few that didn't make it yeah. on, but not to that extent. And, and so, you know, it's sorry to go into it, but you know one one thing that we mentioned previously on the show was the hot coffee mod, yeah, which um, caused a lot of issues because they left that code in of a, a very naughty mod in there, and it's like they haven't done any quality control on this because apparently the hot coffee mod code's still in this new version, which is <laughs> I just can't get my head around that. If you've gone through this huge court case about a, a kind of mod that you've had in there and a piece of content, then how are you going to? Re- like remove it from the game and then in the re-release bring it back i don't know it's i just yeah. quality control here man like you just i don't know i just don't know what's happened then it just baffles me that like you know i was playing my xbox i just booted my xbox earlier on to watch some tv on it and it was on the main page like grand theft auto trilogy 54.99 i'm like you're having a mm. laugh like my days you want 55 quid for this and it's just like you haven't even like have you even tested it do you know what i mean now, I have played a bit of it, mm. and I've got the, the Switch version. Okay. Um, I got it on launch day. Um, unfortunately, I was away at the weekend. I'd like to have played it more before we record it. I played a bit of GTA 3. Mm. Um, I've got to say, I mean, I did see some things wrong with it. There were a few, like, you know, texture popping, and it does kind of look like, and I've seen other people refer to it as this, it looks like everything's kind of smeared with um, Vaseline <laughs> a bit oh, yeah. on the screen. It's it is quite blurry. I mean, I must admit there is some kind of weird graphics and stuff as well. There's some of the characters are kind of the way they've been remade look a bit mm-hmm. odd. Mm-hmm. Um, I must I didn't see any major problems with it, but I probably only played it for I about have five heard minutes. That GTA Three is the best out. Of That's what I heard. Right, okay. I was about yeah. to say out of the three, I've heard GTA Three is the most playable one. So I mean, I'm looking forward to trying the other ones just to see. I mean, you know what it's like though. Often. I'm not saying, you know, they've done a good job with this. Obviously, there are some major problems with it, and there's not really an excuse for a a PlayStation 2, an original Xbox game, not to run butter smooth on a modern console 20 years later. But you know what it's like? Sometimes people kind of pile on. Um, so I'll be interested to actually see, again, whether it is as bad as people have been making out when I try it, or whether they are. I mean, they've got to do a patch, surely. They can't leave these problems unfixed. Yeah, um, interestingly, I heard that they'd kind of removed it off one of the stores because it had um, uh, files that they that they didn't want in intentionally uninclu- uh, unintentionally included files. I don't know if that was to do with the hot coffee, but also apparently there's an uncompiled version of like all the game kind of locations and stuff, which is mm. really important for modders. So modders may actually be able to go back and. Um, kind of use that and in, in improve mod stuff. So, and I've seen that there's been a lot of uh, a lot of complaints about the rain as well, and apparently a mod's yeah. just come out that fix that. So, yeah, again, it's a modders to the rescue on this one. Well, actually, I mean, you, you look at some of the, the mods of the original game, I mean, you know, fan kind of upscales and stuff look better than some of the stuff they've done in this game. Um, so the fact that, I mean, I think they might have got a, people might have been a bit more lenient on them if it was like, a, you know, maybe a, £10 per game and you can yeah. buy them individually. And, and, and I reckon they're probably going to get a team in now and they go, mm. this is such bad PR, we've got to make it good. And, you know, probably in a month with a couple of updates, it will be absolutely amazing. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 bad to see this much of a, a dodgy launch. And I know there was issues with like GTA 4 and stuff before, but yeah, this is like a bit, it seems like a bit of a rush job. 
and a bit mm. of a money grab to me. Yeah, it's already got that rep now as being terrible, which, you know, takes a lot of coming back from, I think, once it's out there, especially to this scale. So, I mean, I'm looking at this and I was honestly thinking the other day, I wouldn't mind playing a bit of Vice City again. I thought, oh, I'll just play it on my PS2. Yeah. You know, it's got the full soundtrack. I, I know the game's good on there. It's, we've all got it on our shelf as well. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah. well, you're the idiot who bought the new one. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. So I'll uh, I'll play a bit more and I'll give my verdict whenever when I've got into it. Maybe the little patch did by then. Something I'm desperate to get my hands on and play, though, is uh, something that I've got to say looks incredible. Now, Duke Nukem 3D, obviously one of the most, you know, legendary first-person shooters. Uh, this is a new version of it. Um, I was going to say it's a mod, but actually it's like an entirely new game built around the engine called Duke Smoochum 3D that is really just a reflection on everyday life as, as a Brit really, isn't it? Someone who lives in Britain will relate to this. It's pretty much like a high street at the moment, but taken to the extremes. Yeah. I cracked up when I saw this. I had to send this to the guy straight away. So this comes from a guy called Dan Douglas. Now, I'm not too familiar with the ba- his background, but essentially what he did, from what I understand is, you know, for I won't go into the whole details of it, but our health secretary, Matt Hancock, had a scandal, as many British people will know, a few months ago. And he made a game where, where it was just a room using Duke Nukem, wasn't it? Where you could, like, watch the scandal happen. Uh, yeah, using the build engine, which using is the, uh, by Ken yeah. Silverman, which <laughs> Duke Nukem's based on. Yeah, Which went under our radar. We didn't, I hadn't heard of it. I don't think you guys had heard of that. And essentially, because of the popularity of it, he's making it into a full game. And it's just got so much, like... British satire in it and it was just so funny watching the five minute game trailer of it it's like um, playing Viz magazine or spitting yeah. image or something like that it's uh it's all the textures are changed so you're on the British high street and mm. uh, and they all look the same these days every yeah. British high street's yeah, got the same to his local little Greg's and yeah and yeah Kent. and it's got like Matt Plins is there but it's you know caged off and closed because it's just shut down recently <laughs> that made me sad <laughs> it's got lots of politicians in as well so i think theresa may's in in a field of wheat yeah um, yeah you can visit corbyn on an allotment uh david cameron's in his little um we won't go into what he's yeah. doing with that thing <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> nigel farage is in there it's like completely absurd and just uh just the maddest combination of everything and you're running around with a Duke Nukem gun. The bit that I loved and Joe, he sent this over to me and there's a bit where he's outside CX and uh, Mr. Blobby <laughs> makes an appearance. <laughs> I'm realising that anyone outside the UK is like, what the hell are these guys talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's that's why I tried to keep it as just like as, as simple as possible. It's so British, but yeah, man, if if if, if you're at all interested in it, like go check it out. It was, it, it's... It's very funny. That's all I'm, I I'm just watching a clip where he's blowing up Stonehenge <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with, a, with a load of dynamite. I think what makes it really funny me, for me as well is they've kept all the original like Duke Nukem 3D like taglines and stuff, you know, like, so he's like, so it's still Duke Nukem. Like, you know, he's still like, yeah, baby, kind of thing. Like why he's like blowing Mr. Blobby away and stuff like that. So no idea how you can get a hold of this game or if it is actually going to come out you know, as a mod to be playable. I've I've seen a couple of mods done on this engine before, and one that uh, relevant to the last story that I actually saw was GTA One. So okay. the original, you know, above view GTA, mm. they did a full Duke Nukem 3D engine, like 3D version of that, and you could go around the city. And uh, yeah, I don't think the car really works because it was just kind of Duke Nukem running around really fast, like pretending yeah, to yeah. be a car. But um, that was pretty impressive to see. 
on that engine and also this engine you can um you can upgrade it to higher higher graphics as well so oh, you can cool. do it in higher res resolution i think it's a polymost there's a polymost kind of add-on so it's amazing because this engine if you look at the history of the build engine it really started from the ground up and was developed by one guy and then went on to so many games like uh, what is it Will william shatner's tech wars um, yeah. shadow warrior um yeah yeah Duke Nukem, uh, oh, Redneck Rampage as well was another one. Yeah, yeah, I love I love all those games. So I recently went on like a real kind of like playing Hexen and Doom um, yeah. and like Blood. So, you know, this is right <laughs> up my alley if I could get a hold of it. Um, but yeah, just the, the Britishness of it, you know, even, you know, some retro stuff in there, like the Batman standing on, I forget what building it is, you know, when there was that protest and everything like that. It's just... Oh, the, the father's yeah, for justice. The father's yeah, yeah. for justice thing, yeah. It's hilarious to watch. Yeah, so if you ever want to play Duke Nukem uh, defending a London city sightseeing bus or uh, blowing up a defunct BHS department store or gunning down Mr. Blobby outside CX, um, hopefully we'll be able to get to play this soon. I've got to say, I'm more excited about this game than I am about, I am about Grand Theft Auto yeah, 6, same. actually. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully it'll be available to play very soon. Something else that sounds amazing as well. Have you ever wanted, and I'm sure the answer to this is going to be a big yes, to play a retro arcade-style beat-em-up game as David Hasselhoff? That's also right up my street. Like, this episode is just just the embodiment of me. So, yeah, this comes from Hello There Games, um, which was a surprise release a couple of days ago. It's based on, I don't know if you guys have seen it, the short film Kung Fury or heard of it at yes. all? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. saw that Hoff did the soundtrack, so he did like a video yeah. of one of the tunes. Yes. Uh, and it's yeah. the best proper cheesy age. Yes, perfect. Soundtrack. I'm so glad you guys know it. So Kung Fury, the short film, came out like, what, like five years ago? Five, six yeah. years ago? It's been a while. Um, and I know it got funded for a full film release, which I'm pretty sure has been filmed. I could be completely wrong. It could have been out by now, but I know it was filmed, but I know there's been a few Kung Fury games, a few mobile games, and this is a Steam game, um, Kung Fury Street Rage, which has been out for a while on Steam, which I wasn't aware of. This is essentially like a Streets of Rage beat-em-up, but they did a, a patch for it, a chapter two uh, for it the other day, and it is called A Day at the Beach, um, so essentially it's like a second level to the game where you're playing on a beach but they've added David Hasselhoff as an additional character and as Ravi said he did the soundtrack to the film to the short film and there was a music video and like Dan said it was pure 80s cheese I actually yeah. love that song and they've also made it two player the original game wasn't two player so a really fun little expansion to the game which just randomly came out with like kind of you know Kung Fury is been silent recently as far as i know that i've not seen anything about it or anything like that. this is the only thing i've seen so you know maybe they're just kind of putting that out there just like the film's still coming you know we're still interested in this franchise it, don't worry joe you know we're, <laughs> it's coming um so yeah really cool so if you want to play as david hasselhoff beating up people uh, kung fu style on the beach this this is your game i've got a feeling that making it a two-player game is going to cause some big arguments everyone wants to be the half oh yeah 100 percent like yeah, yeah. I, 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 I want to be a young half, not not the drunken kebab eaten off the floor half. <laughs> I'd rather I be don't that think that include that though. <laughs> maybe, maybe the game ends up like that. The third yeah, potentially. Cool. Now speaking of um, kind of famous franchises that have made it onto um, home systems, 
Uh, obviously, a movie that's been massive recently, Dune. Um, that film being, you know, I've seen everyone raving about that recently. And I remember the game. Um, I didn't play it back in the day, but I remember reading reviews of the, uh, the game. I think Virgin put it out, didn't they, back in the early 90s? Yeah, yeah, on, and it was um, very popular on the Amiga as well. And the Omega CD, I think it was on yeah, as well, Dune if I remember. I remember well. getting some really good reviews back then. But it turns out there's actually a Dune game that was meant to be released on the Game Boy Advance that never made it around 20 years ago that finally is getting a form of release. I think it looks pretty good for a Game Boy Advance game. Um, So from what I understand, the game was cancelled in 2002. No idea why. Um, Financial issues. Financial issues, there we go. Um, But it's recently been bought by the Retro Room Games, um, who have bought the engine, but they don't have the IP rights to Dune, which, you know, is like a huge multi-million dollar film now, you know, like the remake and everything, well, re-release or whatever you want to call it. Um, so they, they've re, they're they rebranding the game, which I'll get onto in a second and, you know, release. But essentially by the looks of things, the original game, now don't, I don't want to try and pretend that I know about Dune. Like I'm like a fake nerd right now. I'm not, I don't know Dune. I've not seen the film. I've not read the books. But by the looks of things, it's a first-person space shooter and you fly around in the deserts, you know, in a, in a spacecraft, a flying craft, yeah. sorry, you know, fighting other people. Graphically, it looks pretty impressive for a Game Boy Advance game. You know, like, it, I wouldn't say it's like PS1 graphics or anything like that, but, you know, it, it looks pretty good. Yeah, it it's looks got like, like it, a it runs f- quite well. 3D voxel engine and also yeah. then you're getting, uh, like, people talking over it as well. You've kind of got these, like... <laughs> freeze frames and then you know their mouths are moving and stuff but it does look very interactive and uh yeah very far away from the kind of dune games on the amiga where it's all command and conquer style strategy stuff this is more like a x-wing or yeah something like that a star fox yeah colony wars star fox like like you say x-wing and you know it's it's coming out now it's being released as is it elland the crystal wars which is interesting because, yeah, in the game, the game is called Ellen. Yeah. And Ravi spotted this because there is actually a football stadium, Leeds Football Club playing um, at Elland Road. Okay. That's their grand, isn't it? But there's also mention of uh, Trafford in here as well, which is obviously Man United. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the enemies are like uh, Trafford Corporation. <laughs> and uh, you've kind of got to fight them. So I think basically there's a neighbouring world in there called Mank as well. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think they basically ripped any reference from Dune out of there and replaced it with like football kind of banter and terms, you know. I think that's the best thing they could have done with it, really. Do you know what I mean? And they're doing it currently as a um, a Kickstarter um, with their goal being £10,000, I believe. The point of recording this, they're just over £3,000, but it has just started, I think, literally like yesterday. So it'll be a couple of days in the point of release. Yeah, they only won 5,000, actually. 5,632. Oh, is, is it? Oh, I'm, precise, I'm wrong. Yeah. My bad. So, yeah, they only want 5,632. There we go. But, yeah, it looks so, you know, they're going to be releasing it on the GBA. Um, and if, I think if they hit the right goals and stuff like that, they're going to be doing a physical release, which, you know, we always love. But, yeah, definitely some big footy fans there. Um, Even though the game has nothing, nothing to do with football, it's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had some confusion, didn't we, before we recorded? Because like Ravi was like, "Oh, it's a football game," and I was like, "No, it's not." Neither of us been into football, you or me. Yeah, so like, absolutely like, no idea what he was on about. So I'm glad Ravi spotted it. <laughs> but it is good because I mean, what they've really done then is, I mean, it looked like this game was pretty much finished. Mm. 
yeah. back in yeah. 2002. So yeah. they've got the game. And like you said, they're getting rid of all the, the Dune references. Obviously, I imagine getting that franchise, particularly now, is very yeah. expensive. But it looks like otherwise, it was a pretty much finished game. They're just kind of tweaking a little bit. Um, and it's going to be a commercial, pretty much a AAA quality game that would have come out back in 2002. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like like Dan says, you know, it's like, oh, it's coming out at the same time as the film, so they can't get a hold, hold of the IP at all. But I wonder if they've kind of done that on purpose for the story behind it as well, because on the Kickstarter, they do make a point of like, you know, this was the Dune game. So, you know, maybe it'll tap into some of the fans there as well, but we'll yeah. see. That's quite clever, actually, if so. And I think graphically as well, I mean, I always, you know, I kind of equate, and, you know, you're more of a, a Game Boy fan than I am, Joe. I always had the Game Boy Advance down as like a handheld Super Nintendo, really. Um, yeah. So graphically, I think it's quite impressive. Yeah, you know, and I, I always saw it as, as, a, as like handheld Super Nintendo. Even growing up, it was mm. always like, oh, it's like the SNES. And then when the DS came out, I always saw that as like the, it could play N64 games, essentially. That's how I kind of felt about it as, you know, as a teenager. Yeah. Um, so it is always nice when you see these like first person shooters, you know, that's the only way I can kind of describe it, coming out on the Game Boy Advance. And there is, a good handful of them out there. Some of them are very choppy, but you know, this one looks pretty good. So I want to get yeah, it. Yeah, it looks really smooth. Yeah. So this is Ellen, the crystal wars. It is running on Kickstarter right now. If you want to back it, um, I think it doesn't finish until, um, middle of January next year, actually. It's got a bit of time. And of course I'll link that up and everything else we talked about in our show notes at the retrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat this week, talking about classic games like Agony, Unreal, Outcast with our guest, Frank Sauer. He's coming up in just a moment. Let's give a thank you to another big supporter of the Retro Hour podcast. And this is our friends at Monster Joysticks. Now, listen to this. Doesn't that sound nice? Is that the, is that the beautiful sound of micro switches I hear? It is. Ooh. Proper Sanwar arcade parts. Lovely jubbly. Well, this is what it, Monster Joysticks, I mean, if you're not familiar with them, they offer a wide range of quality arcade joysticks. And actually, they do a few different versions as well. They've got um, retro gaming joystick kits that work with everything, like classic computers like the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64, the Spectrum. They even do versions for consoles as well, like the Mega Drive, the Amiga CD32, the PC Engine. And they also do what I've got here, an all-in-one nine-button Raspberry Pi arcade stick, where actually, if I look around the back of this um, nice substantial joystick, you know, it's got the six buttons on the top there, got a start button as well, coin insert, you know, proper arcade parts as well. It actually feels like playing an arcade machine when I've got it hooked up to the TV. But the really cool thing is you turn it round, and in the back... There's a little Raspberry Pi embedded in there that I've put in there with an SD card. Main boot straight up, plug it into my... Uh, actually, you know, the, the Raspberry Pi I've got in here is Raspberry Pi 3 with the um, the composite output, so I can hook this up to a CRT TV. Oh, nice. And it feels like a mini arcade machine. It's incredible. So it gives you that real portable arcade experience. I know you've got one as well, Ravi, one of the, um, the Amiga joysticks, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I've got the CD32 joystick, and, you know, it's got... Give it a click. Oh, here we go. It's the AMSR hour. Like some people said that after last week with the tapes. Um, yeah. yeah, it's got a button at the back where you can basically change the up to jump to a button, uh, which is really awesome to do. And also, it's just fun putting it together because it only requires a screwdriver, but I didn't have to solder anything. So I didn't end up ruining anything. You know, uh, it, it's really nice little joystick. And I actually, find it the best one that I've used on my Amiga. 
Yeah, I love I love the quality parts that are in here as well. Like you said, you know, the fact that you and I can put this together, you know, we didn't have to solder it or anything, says a lot, I think. So, um, And there are versions with genuine Sanwar arcade parts and more budget-friendly arcade part options as well. So why don't you check them out and support the podcast? Obviously, Christmas coming up, you know, if it's getting to that time of year when your friends and family, your other half is asking, you know, what do you want for Christmas? These make really good presents, actually, very affordable too. So you can find them right now. And support the podcast by checking them out at monsterjoysticks.com. Now, before we jump into our interview, just time to give a big mention to, um, to be honest, the lifeblood of this podcast. And that is our wonderful patrons who, to be quite honest, without our patrons, you know, particularly over the last 18 months or so, this podcast probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, basically, without our patrons, we would uh, be on cassette tape and would have to deliver it to bike to each other. No, you guys have... And, uh, that sounds quite appealing, actually. Yeah, quite retro. You guys have actually enabled us to get studios, which is just amazing. You know, we can record from home, keep the quality up of the show and get some fantastic guests. And back in us as well, you get like a ad-free episode, which is awesome. And it's for a really reasonable price. But also you get to hear our inner thoughts and uh, kind of stories of the past and... Our thoughts about other topics with the backstage section, which is the retro hour after hours. And you also get to meet us on the Patreon Hangout. And we all chat in this massive kind of group. And it's like a pub or a computer club. And man, it's it's good, but it's dangerous because we end up uh, kind of all recommending each other bits of equipment. And, uh, you know, the wallets wallets kind of get a bit lighter. But um, you, go, you guys are fantastic because you have helped us keep independent and... Uh, Looking at the charts, you know, there's there's so many podcasts out there that have backing from huge organisations, and we're pretty much free people. And you know, without your support, we wouldn't wouldn't be going. And it is humbling because often, Ravi, you keep an eye on the podcast charts every week, and we're up there with like you know, Wired magazine and the BBC. IGN sometimes the top ten, yeah. yeah. Sometimes the top ten, we're the only independent podcast in there. So. You know, without the support of our patrons, that wouldn't be the case. So we'd really appreciate that. And like Ravi said, I mean, you get the normal podcast early most weeks. Uh, you get it ad-free as well. You get extra patrons, exclusive content in there as well, an extra news story or two each week. And also you get our uh, patrons' exclusive podcast once a month, the Retro Hour After Hours, a new episode of which will be landing next week, all about the Sega Dreamcast. And we're going to be doing our monthly patrons hangout this coming Sunday at 8pm, which is all so much fun and, uh, as you said, quite expensive. I think you spend most of the Hangout on eBay, Joe? Yeah, eBay and CEX. Because um, some <laughs> yep. people just come on and they're just like, oh yeah, this week I've bought this, 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 this and this. And I'm like, oh my God, I need to look at these things now. It. I need it, I need it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I usually get, a, as, as Ravi says, says, a lighter wallet around uh, Sunday night. <laughs> So if you'd like to help us out on Patreon, I mean, it is getting to the time of the year where it's going to be our sixth birthday, which is nuts in January. Uh, that doesn't mean stuff like our website hosting and audio, all of that, all those costs come up again. And obviously our Patreon, we put it all back into that. So, you know, you're, you're helping out the show as well to keep it going each Friday. So if you'd like to back us on Patreon, all the details are at theretrohour.com and we will give you a massive shout in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And let's give a big welcome and a big thank you to some of our newest patrons, including Niccolo Pitoni, Christopher Tuckwell, Philippe Gomes, Antti Laihavainen, and Action Retro, who we're actually having on the podcast soon. 
Yes, we are. Thank you very much for your support. And everybody else as well, if you'd like to back us on Patreon, as I mentioned, all the details are on our website. You'll find it on the front page of theretrohour.com. Right then, next, it is going to be the guest on this week's show, the bit that we look forward to, chatting about some incredible games. Honestly, like I said before, you know, Agony, just a life-changing game for me as a kid. So can't wait to get the inside story on that and lots more as well with our special guest, Frank Sauer. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, I've been particularly hyped to uh, speak to our guest this week, who was behind. Um, he actually worked on one of the games that convinced me to get an Amiga back in the day. Agony, what an incredible game. We'll talk more about that soon. And of course, artists for other games like Iron Lord, Unreal, Outcast, the co-founder of developer Art Magic as well. Let's welcome on our very special guest this week, the amazing Frank Sauer. How are you doing, Frank? Hey, guys. I'm fine, thank you. And you? Yeah, very good, thank you. And I uh, really appreciate you coming on to share some stories about those classic titles as well. We always like to kind of go back to day one with our guests as well and kind of find out what originally got you into gaming. I mean, do you remember what was your earliest video gaming memory then? Where did it all begin? Yeah, I, I think it was uh, Space Invaders, basically, uh, in an arcade uh, near my my village. And uh, I was really um, hooked by the... the, the the ability of, of a machine to display images, moving images, and produce sound that just blew me away. And actually, um, later on, I found out that game was ported to several microcomputers, and that's how I, get, I got into microcomputers, thanks to uh, Space Invaders. Yeah. What was the computing and gaming scene like then when you grew up in Belgium, and what were kind of the main machines that you know, your friends had? Uh, during the 8-bit era, I would say that the Commodore 64 was the, the main machine. But I was at a computer club uh, near my town, and I met with many friends, uh, including my future partner, uh, Yves Goret, who worked with me on building the companies. And um, all the guys at the, the computer club had various machines, some very obscure, even one Belgian machine. I don't know if you know about it, the die. Uh, which was a very advanced computer for the time. There were uh, all sorts of machines, but he and I shared the same Commodore machine, and that's how we started working uh, on the machine. I also had, before that, a Texas Instrument TI-99-4A. And, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, Belgium is a small country. It's a middle, in, in the middle of, uh, in between larger countries. So I think we had uh, various machines because of, various influences from our neighbors. But mainly, I would say that the Commodore 64 was the, the, the most popular 8-bit machine. I'm quite interested in that machine you mentioned from uh, Belgium as well. Did you say it was the die? What, what was that like then? I've never heard of that before. It's, it was a, um, built as a, as a business computer, but it, has, it had very advanced graphic capabilities uh, for the time, uh, capable of drawing images in 512 by 280-something. So it was, but it was quite expensive. And uh, I remember one guy at the club, at the computer club, uh, at one of those machines. I tried to buy one on eBay a few um, years ago, but the price was much too high. <laughs> uh, very, very uh, collector machines nowadays. Well, you mentioned that your uh, first machine was the Texas Instruments TI 99 uh, 4A. And what, what kind of stuff were you doing on there? And how practical was that machine? Well, that's the machine uh, I learned the basic programming language on. 
So my first programs, I remember uh, coming back from the store with the machine and my mom helped me uh, reading the manual and starting writing the first commands. And soon she gave up because I was much too fast for her. <laughs> and um, the first thing I, I noticed was that you could uh, create your own graphics. The, the basic didn't, didn't provide access to the frame buffer, or I don't even think they did. It had a, f a full frame buffer, uh, and you, but you could uh, modify the, the character set and create some graphics out of redefined characters, what we would call later tile-based graphics, and uh, all that had to to be done by hand. So you had to, I I I, I would draw uh, pixels on, on on a sheet of paper and then transcribe those into hexadecimal values for each line of each character. And that took pages and pages of basic code just to display a few, few characters on the, on the screen. But it was such, um, such an incredible experience to produce your own images on the screen. The, the TI Basic also provided some functions to, to call uh, sound routines. Uh, it had the very basic uh, sound chipsets. I don't remember the... the the, the chipset exactly, but it was something like three square waves uh, and one noise wave and something or something like that. And you could uh, call uh, in basic a routine to play a note at a certain pitch with a certain du duration. And I would try to play some tunes using, uh, using that. There were no tools, so it was all programming directly um, the, using the various uh, basic instructions. The basic was pretty basic <laughs> <laughs> and uh, i learned that you could uh, write programs in assembly language but unfortunately i, I didn't know that at the time but I, I learned that years later that um texas texas instruments provided a workstation to to make their own games in assembly language which were very expensive so not many developers were using uh, using those later on they provided a uh, cartridge with a small assembler uh, but i was already uh, moving away from from that machine and uh, i think that's part of the the, the reason uh, why the, the ti didn't succeed that that much uh, as compared to more open platforms like the c64 for instance well moving on to the c64 you you worked with your classmates at night and uh, you, you created a game, No Never Outside, which was yeah. a gra graphical adventure for the C64 and it took three years. So what was the kind of aims and what was it like working on a big project, collaborating? I think the, the, the main goal was just to, to make something happen, to, to create our own game, our own universe and uh, hopefully you know, sell many of them and become famous. <laughs> uh, I think we sold like something like 400 pieces in, in total. Uh, but at least it, it gave us the opportunity to, to uh, enter the games industry, the nascent game industry. So it was a very long process because we worked, as you said, only uh, in the evening at night. And uh, there, was, there were no internet, of course, at the time. So... Uh, we had to meet either at our places or at the, the computer club. My mom had to drive me to his place because uh, I didn't have driving license yet. So it was very complicated and very slow process. 
but we uh, managed to to finish it. It's something that I learned maybe at that moment that in the games industry, the, the, the main thing is to finish something. Even, mm. even if it's uh, not very good, finishing a project is, is very, very important. It, it gives you the, the, makes you understand the, the difficulties, the, 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 makes you understand that you really need to continue endlessly working on your thing. And I, and I think that's, that's why there's, there's a lot of people trying to get into the games industry, but they, they give up because they, they cannot stand the, the, the pressure and the, the work that has to be done to finish a, a game. That's very important. I mean, obviously doing a graphical adventure for your first title, you know, very ambitious and graphically, I mean, it, it's a beautiful game on the C64. And I was reading that actually you did quite a lot of those graphics on um, an SX64, which for people that don't know, was a, uh, a portable version of the Commodore 64. Now, I say portable, it's not like a MacBook Air. This thing was uh, 10.5 kilograms, yeah. <laughs> um, a carry handle, a little five-inch CRT yeah. screen in there as well. I mean, it must have been difficult doing art on such a tiny screen. Actually, I had two screens. I, I, I had a monochrome larger screen that was hooked up to the, the, the S64. So I would check the color on the small screen and I would check the, 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 the pixel quality, if I can say so, on the, on the larger screen. And there's some mistakes mm. in the colors if you look at some of the pictures because I, I mismatched the, the, the choice of color because I, they, they were looking okay on the monochrome co- 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 um, monitor, but they were not uh, quite uh, at the right place. Uh, and there, there was no... Um, the, the, the tool was very, very um, primitive too, so that there was no uh, zoom that you could paint into. So if I recall well, there was... a a small window that showed what you were painting uh, in a zoom fashion, an enlarged view, but you couldn't paint in that enlarged view. So the precision was really, really bad. And it was all jittery because the converters of the, the, the XY position of the tablet were really noisy. That was terrible, terrible. <laughs> I still have the tablet, by the way, and the s 64 Oh, nice. nice. You you got it published by uh, Lancor. Um, who were those guys? And um... they they were um, a French uh, publisher in Paris, and they had published various games mainly on on uh, other platforms like the I think the Atari ST and and the Amiga. They were although we were at the very end of the life of the C sixty four, they were eager to to have also some some games on that platform. And for us that. It, it was, again, the opportunity to, to enter the, the very closed uh, uh, games industry. Having published something opens a lot of doors. And that, that really was our goal. Well, how popular was the Amstrad CPC in France? Because I know you did some games on there. I mean, tell us about the titles that you worked on on the Amstrad. And um, were there many other opportunities in that world? Actually, the game I worked on, uh, on, on the Amstrad was when I was employee at Ubisoft. Uh, they, were, um, they were also working with uh, independent programmers. And there, there was that guy who had made uh, a game on, on, on the Amstrad. The game was called Terre and Conquerant, which is like a kind of um, common and conquer uh, game. And um, he didn't know how to, to do the graphics. So he uh, asked his publisher, which was Ubisoft, can you make the graphics for us, for me? And um, as I was an employee and I had a, 
already some experience on the 8-bit platforms. And I was eager to, to try to, um, to work on that machine because uh, it had uh, a larger palette than the C64. The color were more vibrant, maybe too, a bit too vibrant. And uh, mm. so it, it was interesting to work on, on that platform. And, uh, but I didn't see the result of the, of the game, of the graphics integrated into the game uh, until many years later when I bought a copy of the game on eBay. So uh, that was a, a, a very special a very bizarre process working on on some graphics based on specification sending the graphics over and didn't hear about the game until uh, years later well tell us about working um, with ubisoft then i mean <laughs> they were all based in like a a giant castle at the time then what was kind of the atmosphere and the culture like there at that time it was very unprofessional <laughs> Uh, uh, it was fun. It was fun because we uh, we were a bunch of uh, nerds uh, locked in a castle in the middle of nowhere, and um, we were left on our own, literally. So the time started to shift. We were waking up at noon, having fun during the day, and programming at night. And uh, that was really, really um, a very unique experience. And uh, the castle was in, in, in the middle of a large forest, several square kilometers. So you couldn't walk out of the, the, the forest. It was too, too big. So we, we were literally on our own. And uh, Ubisoft provided food. Uh, so there were suppliers coming every, every day or every week with food and, and drinks and so on. And the rest of the time, it was just like, do whatever you like. No, uh, no planification, no, no nothing. And uh, surprisingly, uh, a couple of games came out of that, that experience. And um, we, we met a lot of really cool people who happened to, to, um, to develop a very um, important expertise in their field and share some, some, some important information during that, that time. So it, it was nice. I hear you um, tried to trick one of your bosses into thinking uh, you'd developed artificial <laughs> intelligence. Yeah. Uh, that, that was Gerard, one of the youngest uh, Gimo brother. What we did was that we, we had a couple of developers working on, on Amigas and we set up one Amiga in one of the room and another one in another room and we um, connected them together using, I think, some serial cable that w was going out the window uh, from one room to the other. And then we, um, we invited uh, Gerard to, to uh, talk to the computer because we had downloaded from some obscure BBS on artificial intelligence or something like that. And uh, we told him, you can ask any question, personal question, and uh, it, will, it will answer. And, and what we had was a, a simple... Um, text connection between the two uh, machines. And while the guy on the other room was typing the answer, we, we would have the, the, the drive, the disk drive led blinking, like if the machine was thinking about the answer. <laughs> and, and we had his girlfriend with us on the other room. So we, we started to, to, um, to tell uh, very intimate things about his life. <laughs> was going crazy what the hell is happening here yeah that was fun well another really ambitious game that you worked on on the commodore 64 was iron lord i know originally that was a uh, atari st yeah 
um, role-playing game and that, you know, loads of mini games and stuff in there as well. It, you know, quite a complicated game. How did you handle the Commodore 64 conversion while keeping all those mini games and the, the graphics high quality? Because, I mean, obviously going from 16-bit to 8-bit, you know, quite a downgrade usually. Yeah, everything had to, to be uh, rewritten from scratch. So nothing except the end results, the... the, the we, we had a goal uh, to fulfill, to, to try to be as faithful as possible to the original, but we couldn't share anything uh, from the original game uh, except maybe some, some texts or something. But uh, so, so all the graphics had to be uh, done from scratch. And if you look at the graphics, they, are, they aren't exactly the same. It's a rewrite, reinterpretation of, of the original by the three artists. Uh, that we were uh, working on on the title. So three artists for for one sixty four game is is very ambitious indeed, and probably unheard of at the time. Yeah, it it was a lot of work, and the fact that it it was written in assembly language uh, made it possible because the original I think was a mixture of of GFA basic probably and uh, some maybe some assembly for some routines. But so so the, the original game. Uh, was taking a lot more space because of the way it, it was implemented. The assembly, the assembly implementation of C64 were, were, was more compact, were more tight, and uh, worked better on, on, on that front. It, it was to the point that our version came out before the original because they, they still had some bugs on the original because of the, the basic and the, the memory leaks and and it had a great music as well, where Jerome Tell created the soundtrack. What yeah. was it like working with him? I don't remember who uh, contacted uh, Maniacs of Noise, but the fact is that we knew them from the demo scene. Uh, when we were at the castle, we often uh, downloaded some uh, some uh, demos from BBS. And uh, one of the demos that I really uh, was fond of was uh, from Scoop Designs. It was uh, That's the Way It Is. And uh, I think it, it was Hirun who, who wrote the, that tune. And it just blew me away the, the way that they were capable of producing s- such sounds out of this uh, little chip. And uh, yeah, so, so Ubisoft uh, contacted them. Uh, and uh, I think they work on, a, on a several games. Uh, and we kept con- in contact with Hirun. And that's how we came to have him on board for, for the, the Amiga games as well. Let's talk about your um, work on the Amiga. What was it like when you started using that platform and kind of what packages were you using and what tricks did you learn early on to really push that machine graphically? Well, the first thing I have to say about the Amiga is that I was both disappointed and amazed by, by the machine when it, when it came out. I was a bit disappointed by the sound originally because I was expecting Commodore to come up with some, some advanced uh, synthesizer and it was just for audio sampling voices, and I, I, I saw that as a downgrade from coming from the the subtractive synthesizer uh, that was a seed on on the C64. But later on, programmers started to implement uh, their own synthesizer using software-based synthesis. So it, it, some great tunes happened uh, later on during the the, the life of the, the Amiga. But on the graphic side, it was really an amazing platform. I remember seeing the, 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 one of the first Amiga here in Belgium playing the, the Juggler uh, demo, yeah. retracing, uh, even if it was just a, f- a flip book of 
pre-rendered images. The, the, the fact that you could create such images using ray tracing at home was just mind-blowing. So I, I, I've always been interested in computer graphics, and I think I was interested in computer graphics even more than in games at the beginning. It just happened that if you wanted to create graphics, you had to have a computer and you could also do games. And that's how I started in, really in, in, in the game industry and making my first game because of the platform. Uh, but originally, I wanted to do computer graphics. So when the Amiga came out, I was like, wow, I can use some 3D uh, modeling uh, tools. And uh, so I, I, I started playing with those. And I used... 3D graphics uh, in some of the games uh, as, as pre-rendered sprites. Uh, but mostly for the games, I used, obviously, uh, uh, Deluxe Paint. Uh, I think it was Deluxe Paint 3, the most popular one uh, that I used for, for, for most of, of the games. I was uh, uh, expecting a little bit more in terms of interfaces because I've I have seen in professional workstation, they were using graphics tablets. And, but there were no graphics tablets on the Amiga, so I had to learn back how to use a mouse to, uh, to do the graphics. Fortunately, it was mostly pixel art, so, so it was mostly placing one pixel at a time. Uh, so you, you didn't really have to um, have free, free form movements you know, to create shapes. You would create shapes by placing pixels. So the mouse what was, was okay. I, I learned to, to, um, to use the, that that input device well your first title unreal on the amiga um, was absolutely stunning and you had lots of like 3d assets as well as 2d mm. was was that a lot of work to do those 3d sections as well as the 2d ones in terms of programming it was two games in one so uh, uh, that's that's how we split the work uh, we were four working on on that game and we say, okay, let's. We want to to make a, a graphic adventure with a action graphic adventure with 3D elements in it because we were fans of some of of the the, the arcade games with scaling sprites. I, I I think that that was really the moment when we started thinking about what 3D is and the fact that 3D was the ultimate goal for any game developer. Something that seems absolutely um, obvious today but when you live in a 2d world you you don't necessarily think further until you start experimenting with different play fields different distance and scaling and then suddenly you realize but i need to to get immersed in this environment so i need 3d and uh, obviously those machines were weren't able to to do a proper 3d with a textured graphics and, and, and such. So the only way to provide in, in some kind of 3D was to, uh, to use scaled, scaled sprites. So Eve worked on, on the 3D part and worked on the routines to, uh, to scale uh, the sprites. And um, uh, Jan worked on the, on the 2D, uh, 2D part. And we, Mark Albine, who is, uh, who's been working on, uh, at, at Ubisoft uh, recently, uh, worked uh, with me on on various uh, levels. Some of the um, assets, although they are sprites or more like blitter object, actually, uh, were pre-rendered using some of the the 3D tools that I 
been experimenting on, on the Amiga. So I wanted to to try new methods of rendering, pre-rendering sprites, not just drawing them uh, all by hand. Especially when I wanted to have some some kind of 3D movement, like the, the floating castle in one of the uh, latest level uh, of the game. It's it's it was modeled in 3D uh, with some crude shapes and this, then overpaint. Each frame was overpaint in in uh, in deluxe paint to to give more uh, more detail and more um, texture. Well, obviously, Unreal, I mean, it was a stunning game. And um, Ubisoft published it, but you weren't independent. I mean, was that the start of Art and Magic coming together then? What was kind of the story there? Yeah, the, we were working on Iron Lord and uh, other internal projects as employees. During the night, we would work at home on a new project, and that was the, the beginning of Unreal. And at some point, we, we pitched the game to, um, to the Ubisoft uh, guys and. But we, we told them, okay, uh, we cannot continue working as employees on your internal games and work on our own project. We, we need to, uh, to quit the, the regular job. And uh, of course, they agree. <laughs> Looking back at it, it's, more, uh, it's obvious that it's uh, financially more interesting for, for them to, to pay independence uh, only when they... Uh, they provide some some milestones uh, for the games instead of paying employees, uh, whatever they do. Yeah. So, yeah. but we came back in in Belgium and uh, worked on uh, on the game, and uh, yeah, we we had uh, a deal for a publishing deal. We did not sell that much. I mean, it it was okay, given that the the, the Amiga was already nearing uh, its end of uh, of life. But it was again another, another stepstone for us to 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 get uh, more visibility in the in the industry. Indeed, that that's how we we got our contract with Synosis later on. Well, how did the industry react then? Because I saw a lot of people would put it up against Shadow of the Beast, and they would do like you know a real versus Shadow of the Beast kind of comparison. Oh. Well, I I think it it was far from being uh, up to. Uh, to the Shadow of the Beast standard. But uh, the thing is that for uh, a French publisher, there was it, it was one of their flagship products, especially on, on that platform, because it was a very technical game. And uh, yeah, the game was nominated for some awards. I don't think we, we, got, we got awards, maybe one, I, I don't remember. But yeah, it was well received by the, by the public especially in France, because it was coming from a French publisher. Let's talk about Agony. Um, and I remember, you know, as a kid, just before I got my Amiga, going to a friend's house and actually seeing his Amiga 500 with Agony on there. And I saw the intro screen and that incredible parallax effects on there as well. So tell us the story of Agony and um, how some of those effects were implemented and how did you get to work on them? Originally, we planned to, um, to do a sequel to Unreal. Uh, and we wanted to have a uh, futuristic uh, shoot 'em up uh, game. And the thing is that one of our programmers, Jan, had to go to do his military duty. So we, we, uh, our team was was shrinking, uh, and so we, we we thought, okay, let's not go into uh, too complicated development. Let's let's not make another uh, action adventure. 
uh, we thought at the time that the shoot em up was more sm- was smaller, more constrained, so it was easier to 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 develop. On, on the other hand, we we also were looking at the production from Psygnosis, and we were fan of of their work. I mean, all the studios that were signed by, by Psygnosis were doing incredible work. You talked about Shadow of the Beast, but there were many others, and uh, so we we th- we thought, okay, let Let's make a demo. Let's show them a demo uh, during uh, the, the CTS uh, in London. And uh, that's how it started. That's how we convinced them we're able to produce the kind of quality game that they were expecting from, from that people were expecting from, from Psygnosis. So we met and Steve Riding, the, the produce, one of the producers there. We showed him the demo. We showed, we showed him the demo at the Ubisoft booth. <laughs> Because we were uh, showing Unreal at the same time, and uh, yeah, in the evening we went uh, out uh, for dinner with him, and uh, he gave us a bunch of goodies from from Signosis, t-shirts, books, art stuff, or games, and we were just happy uh, uh, as could be. And uh, yeah, f- a few few days later, we we signed uh, the publishing deal with uh, with them. Well, the main character, I mean, really stood out, you know, being an owl. Yeah. Is that because of Cygnosis and their logo, or was that an idea that you already had? And were there any other ideas for what the main character would be before the owl? Originally, I think uh, it, it was planned to, to make um, a spaceship, but then we, we thought, okay, all the shoot em ups are based on, on future, futuristic uh, settings already. So what could we do to, to be a little bit original? And uh, so uh, we thought about uh, the fantasy uh, setting, and um, I had this uh, this video of the Labyrinth movie, and um, uh, I thought, well, why not use a howl as uh, as the main character? Uh, it would be cool and appealing to the the signal these guys because that's their logo. But that that was not their idea. We had the demo already with the whole animation and uh, that's maybe it helped signing the deal but uh, a a nice coincidence yeah exactly (laughs) well how important was the Unreal Editor uh, that that you created before because like the graphics in that game are absolutely beautiful and you know even the intro screens and and the holding slides and stuff are just fabulous so how, how much did that help kind of speed up stuff the tools were pretty pretty uh, basic actually we we wrote if wrote the tools uh, the various uh, editing tools in gfa basic we had different tools depending on the game on, on unreal it was um was not tile based it was only sprite based but the sprite would build a screen uh, in advance a three three screen wide map if you will then at, that took like half a second to build at at the beginning of a level, and then the the the, the screen would scroll uh, when the character was moving. Uh, in Agony, um, we used a, a tiles-based system. Tiles were actual blitter objects. It was not uh, a limitation or a constraint of coming from the hardware. It was a software tile-based system that we implemented. With uh, with two la- layers that we could superimpose to uh, enrich the the environment, and uh, and then the, the parallax effect was made by 
using different tiles, uh, using different uh, graphical uh, modes. So we had less and less color. Uh, the more you you, the further you 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 get in in depth. Uh, so the first playfield would have more color than the next, a little bit less, and the last playfield would only be uh, one color. But to, with the Amiga, you had the ability to uh, to change dynamically the palette during the the screen uh, scanning. So um, the copper uh, was a specialized uh, chip that you could program to read a, a list of command and change register uh, during the, the scanning of the, the screen. So you could change the, the, the background color, for instance, or the sprite color as you go. And that's that's a usual technique uh, back then, even back uh, to the, the, the Atari uh, days where you uh, you didn't have the, the memory for to hold the frame buffer everything would be drawn as the the, the screen displays the the, the pixels and uh, in a sense the amiga was capable of both it could handle a frame buffer it could handle sprites but it could also do uh, it, it could also do do uh, the racing the beam kind of manip- screen manipulation and color manipulation so it it was very tricky that's how most of the uh, technically advanced games on the Amiga were working anyways. Well, I mentioned before how, you know, Agony that graphically left, you know, a huge impression on me as a kid. You know, not only the, the parallax scrolling, the rain and the lightning effects as well, but even from the very first screen. And I know that Roger Dean did the logo to that game as well. Obviously, yeah. you know, famous for doing a lot of rock <laughs> um, album covers before that. And he did, you know, quite a few games, uh, logos for Cygnosis as well. Before that, I mean, um, th- that must have been amazing having him working on the game. And did that kind of give it some credibility and help it become a brand, Agony? Uh, yeah, probably. Uh... Although we never met him, it, it was just a work for error, uh, Psygnosis side. But um, yeah, Psygnosis had, had this ability to to put together top resources, whether from music, from graphics, from, from uh, as you said, the, the design of the logo or the, the painting for, for the box art or whatever. They always hired the best uh, people. And that's that's something that really was attractive to us and we were really proud to be part of that family if you will so yeah i, I think definitely uh they they add some some branding attached to their their package the, just the, the 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 box design was really uh, classy with a red uh, stripe and uh, uh, around the, the black background it was really uh, really mm-hmm. nice and they had uh, sometimes you you could find uh, t-shirts inside the boxes and stuff like that so really really uh, really nice publisher all around they, they, um, it's it's probably one 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 time when we had uh, a lot of uh, artistic uh, freedom. Of course, the game the game is not very uh, advanced uh, gameplay wise. There's nothing new or special about it. And maybe we could have invested more effort into the gameplay and maybe a little bit less on the technology. But those were the days. <laughs> Well, that was the thing. I mean, just putting that disc in, I would show it to friends just to be like, look what this machine can do. Yeah, exactly. You know, as a technical demo, <laughs> it was incredible. And you know, not just visually as well, I mean, the music in there, that, you know, that piano intro that Tim Wright did, I mean, that still gives me goosebumps to this day, that music. I mean, how did that kind of come into it? And what was it like working alongside um, Tim? You know, it really gave it a, a feel of quality, I think. Yeah. Um, what we wanted was to to uh, to provide something different from the usual... Uh uh, games and I, I had this idea of a, a piano introdu- introduction music. 
uh, I was playing a little bit of piano myself and I, I quickly sketched the melody and, and sent it to Steve and said, could you hire some musician to do something like that for our intro that, that it would be really classy and different from the, the techno kind of music that you usually, usually hear with the uh, I shoot them up. And uh, that's how we came to, to hire uh, Tim Wright. And uh, uh, Tim sent over his music, but he was using uh, pretty poor samples uh, because he was very, um, my guess is he was very uh, tight in, in usually uh, in, in memory when working on other titles. So he was used to, to produce uh, very uh, small samples. And I had a bunch of pretty good uh, piano samples. So I replaced those. One of the uh, the sounds, because the, the sampling rate I, I used was was higher than the one he used, so one of the notes could not be played because the the pitch range that the Amiga was capable of shifting the the note uh, was limited. And since my bass sample rate was already high, it couldn't reach that note. So I just took that note and moved moved it down one octave lower. So so the music changed. At first, uh, Tim was a bit. Uh, not upset, not upset, but uh, he, he felt strange because it didn't sound like the music he, he made. Uh, but we had all the right to do that because that's that's the way the contract uh, worked. And in the end, I think it was a good um, choice because the people wouldn't know that one note was on at the wrong of the octave. It was just a nice music, uh, and and that's how it's uh, remembered, and that's cool. Well, as you mentioned before, the kind of uh, Amiga scene was was dying off, and uh, you guys at Art and Magic decided to go into arcades, and um, you ended up meeting up with Konomi and decided on creating custom arcade boards. And I looked at these, and I'm quite interested because there was a bit of Amiga influence in there. Absolutely. Uh, what, yeah. what, what what were the kind of elements that you had on those boards? Our first thought was to go and see an arcade publisher and we went uh, at uh, Konami headquarters in Germany. We met with them and then sh they showed us their uh, hardware. And uh, when we came back, we we thought, no, that's that's not the way uh, we, we want to go. Their hardware was tile-based. It was a very uh, old school approach. And coming from the Amiga, we knew that the future was, you know, more uh, software-driven uh, acceleration, uh, hardware acceleration based on, on the Blitter, which eventually would become the, the modern GPU. The Blitter is a 2D, is the first 2D programmable uh, accelerator and, and today's 3D uh, rasterizer are based on the, the pretty much the same principles. They, they, they fetch some texture from memory they resample it. That's that's the new part. But at the time, they just took pixel as they were in memory and move them in another part of the memory in the the, the frame buffer. And that, that's what we wanted to do. And we wanted to do that very fast. Uh, at first, we thought about putting several uh, Amiga mainboards together and composite the result to produce a final image. And uh, when we met with the with the, the electronic company here in Belgium, they said, "Oh no no no, you can't do that. You're gonna run into a legal problem using the hardware from somewhere somewhere uh, someone else." Uh, we were too young to think about those those issues, and uh, they said, "We we can build um, a custom chip based on your specification." Uh, so we uh, 
we provided them with the, the, the basic specification. They built some prototype and we iterate doing tests and tests and uh, came up finally with a very good uh, 2D, uh, 2D hardware uh, with a custom blitter that was capable, if I remember correctly, of pushing 20, 20 megapixels per second, which was pretty good for the time. Well, speaking of other, you know, big titles that you worked on, I mean, skipping forward a few years to the end of the 90s, um, you were the director on Outcast, which was, you know, a, a groundbreaking action-adventure game. A lot of people described it at the time as being very ahead of its time. I mean, what kind of elements were in there that really pushed the boundaries, do you think? I, I think the, the fact that it was one of the, of the first uh, truly open-world uh, game open world not just in the sense of the, the 3d space that you can explore but also gameplay wise because you you could literally progress in any direction and um, and there were some midpoints uh, in the scenario of the game of course but you could uh, do whatever you like in any order that you liked uh, in between those main main points, which which was really new at the time, most most of the the, the games were very linear in their uh, in their development. So not only we had uh, a very unique uh, rendering technique with the voxels landscape, um, not only the the map were quite big for the time. There was this gameplay element that you were part of the story but you could really decide the order of the, of the events within the story i think that that's the main the main reason that the game uh is uh, regarded as some 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 unique and some milestone in in the in the, in the games industry so funny enough the the game started as a, as a, an id for 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 the arcade so when we were after we we made several arcade games with, with our 2D board, we started thinking about creating a 3D board, but not based on, on Polygon, based on voxels. And we even wrote some specification, but at the end, uh, the hardware guys told us that's too early, uh, the memory is too costly, we don't have the, the, the bandwidth, we don't have the compression methods, etc. Et so we, we dropped the ID, and instead we... Uh, uh we moved to the we moved back to to the consumer market uh through the the, the pc platform uh, because it was uh the, the, the we saw the cpu as as a way to to better express ourselves because because it was a programmable um platform we were not constrained by specific hardware features and we could write our own uh renderer the way we we liked and that's how Outcast came came uh, to life. I know the game got um, a remake a few years ago mm -hmm. as well. Outcast Second Contact. What was the idea of kind of bringing that game back? You know, after so long then, and uh, how well was that received? The the idea was to um, produce a modern game uh, with very little resources, and um, mm -hmm. and to be able to demonstrate our ability to produce decent quality titles on modern platforms and revive potentially the, the Outcast universe. And uh, so we started with um, a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, we were aiming for 600,000 euros, which is not much for, for such a development. And uh, mm. it didn't work. It didn't work for, for several reasons. We weren't prepared enough, I think, for, for the campaign. 
But the good thing is that uh, it, it raised the, uh, the awareness uh, around our project and uh, one publisher got interested into f uh, funding the, the game. So yeah, the game happened. Uh, it sold reasonably well. And uh, the thing is that it served us as a, as a new um, demo to try to get some, some new contracts. And uh, for, we, we were fortunate enough to meet uh, THQ uh, Nordic at, uh, at the Gamescom. And they were great fans of Outcast. And uh, they uh, signed uh, Outcast 2 uh, with us. So uh, it's been announced, I think, uh, last month or a few, few weeks ago. Uh, that Outcast 2 has now been in development for, for, for several years. I can't say anything about the release date. It's not announced yet, but uh, it's happening. <laughs> the, the announcement trailer's out there. People can watch that. I'll, I'll link that. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And it will be out for the PC, uh, PlayStation 5, and Xbox Series. And I've seen so many people online, you know, really hyped that it's finally getting a full, proper sequel as well. So um, the fans must be over the moon about it. They must <laughs> yeah. be really happy. <laughs> and it, it's, looking, it's looking quite good. The, the the company um, has got some other uh, development uh, also uh, at the moment that I can't talk about. Uh, mm. Although personally, I've worked on, on Outcast 2 for about a year and a half. Uh, but since then, I've quit uh, the production because that was, that was too much stuff for me. And I wanted to go back mm. to some personal project that I've been working on for a long time. Also, I teach at the university college here. So... It was like two full-time jobs. That was too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> well, it's great that you did do some work on it as well, though, and um, obviously we'll, uh, we'll we'll keep an eye on that game for when it comes out. And um, any other projects that you've got as well, Frank, we wish, wish you all the best of luck with it. And thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your memories. It's been amazing to talk thank to you. Thank you.